All right, well, hey, thanks, thanks for being here, guys. Um, I do have something I really want to share with you guys today, and keep your Bibles open there in Matthew. Uh, we'll be referring back to that several times, Matthew chapter 19, verse, beginning in verse 13, about the rich young ruler. So um, keep, your, keep your Bibles open there. So I'm going to begin today with a story, and you may have heard it before, but there's a story of a young man who wants to marry the daughter of a farmer. And he goes to the farmer and he says, I would love to marry your daughter. Can I have your blessing? And he says, you can have my blessing if you can do one thing. If you can catch one of my bulls by the tail. So the young man says, okay, I'll try anything. Your daughter is worth it. So he goes into the corral and the farmer opens the door and before him is the biggest, meanest bull he's ever seen. Huge and muscular. You could maybe something like this from the running of the bulls, okay? Huge, muscular, snotting all over the place, stomping the ground. This bull is pissed. So he, the young man says, look, whatever the guy's got behind, there's three bulls coming. Whatever's behind him cannot be this big. I'm going to let this bull just run on by. So he moves to the side and lets the bull run through. Here comes the next bull. This bull is bigger, meaner, snottier, stomping the ground, vibrating the ground. The guy is scared. So he goes, look, I got one more chance. There's no way the bull is bigger than this. So he lets that bull run on by. Last chance. The, opens the door. The bull is scrawny small, bony, like that, right? And the guy goes, man, this is great. I got this one. I can grab this bull's tail. No problem. I made a great decision. The bull starts to run. He goes to tackle the bull and grab the tail, and there's no tail. There's no tail. What's he going to do now? He missed his opportunity. He had two chances, and he missed it. He missed it. So have you ever missed an opportunity? Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? I don't know about you, but I can look back on my life and go, man, I should have grabbed a hold of that. I should have done something. I should have said something different, or I shouldn't have said what I wanted to say, right? In my case, it's more often that. Or I should have handled that disciplined behavior with my kids better. I, most parents could probably say that. I've got a huge mistake in my life that I missed. I've got a chart here. I worked for Lennar Corporation, and during the downturn, I never lost my job during the downturn, but the stock went as low as $3.58 in 2009, and now, it's as of Friday, it closed at $120 a share. What an opportunity. I didn't, why didn't I take the opportunity to buy a bunch of stock when it was under 4 bucks? Because $1,000 then would be, what, $25,000 now or $20,000. So why didn't I take the opportunity? Because it was the downturn and because I was fearful. I never lost my job. I always, I mean, I served a God who I knew would take care of me and my family, but I still didn't take the opportunity. I had the money. I had the savings because I was following Dave Ramsey, but I didn't take the opportunity. I don't know. You guys probably have tons of those. I mean, when you look back at stock prices of all kinds of stuff, you're like, if only I knew. But in this case, I did know. 
I did know, and we all watched it. All of our employees were like, man, look how low the stock price is. Are we going to have a job tomorrow when we should have been saying, it's on sale. Let's get it. There's another one here. J.K. Rowling wrote the Harry Potter series, and did you know that she went to several different publishers before she found one that would publish her book? How many of those publishers are regretting not taking her book on to publish? If you ever think of how many bad de- of your bad decisions, just remember it took 12 publishers that turned down Harry Potter. Pretty significant, right? So uh, it's out there. There's examples from Scripture of lost opportunities a lot. The people of Noah's day were preached to by Noah. They had an opportunity to save their life, to get on the boat. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah had a chance to repent. The two thieves on the cross next to Jesus, one of them took the opportunity to call out for grace and mercy from Jesus, and the other one didn't. And they actually had a conversation about it. So he knowingly rejected God's grace when he had an opportunity to accept it. And then the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells, the Levite priests walked by the beaten man multiple times before the Good Samaritan came. A person who was ostracized by the Jewish community came and helped the beaten man. All of those priests had an opportunity to serve God and to take care and to minister to him, and they all passed it up. And then, of course, what we're going to talk about today is the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, you often see probably something like this when you think about it or you look or when you were in Sunday school, but I found a better picture when I was preparing of this, maybe something like this one, a more modern version, right? A young man, very successful, financially wealthy, with an entourage, of very beautiful women or other men, but the entourage, and he's driving a Ferrari, right? It's hard for me to think of the rich young ruler pulling up on a camel and for him to be successful in my mind. But pulling up in a Ferrari saying, wait, Jesus, wait, how can I get to heaven? How can I inherit eternal life? And that, I think, is just a much cooler, a much cooler um, representation, more accurate in my mind. But that's me in Texas in 2023. I like a Ferrari. It means success, right? But man, as I started looking into this um, example of missed opportunity, there's so much in this story. We could do a sermon series on this, this very brief conversation between Jesus and the rich young ruler. And first, as Paul read, when he talks about children Remember, the Bible doesn't have chapter and verse delineations. Matthew wrote this as a continuous story, and so did Mark and Luke. They both wrote the exact same thing in the same order, so we know it's true and that it happened in that order. And what's key here is that Jesus is first talking to children. The children are coming up to Jesus, and that some of the disciples consider that annoying, for the good teachers, so they try to shoo them away. And Jesus says, wait, let them come to me, because whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And what does a child have to trust in Jesus is faith. They have faith like a child, and that's what he's talking about. Because right after that, 
is when the rich young ruler runs up to him. It's a continuous story. So as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you should probably know that this is something that the Jewish people said a lot because it's in Psalms and later in Romans chapter 3, Paul affirms the fact that the Jewish people believe that no one was good but God. It's an appropriate belief. No one has created good, or no one is, is good because of the sin nature they've inherited but God. So when Jesus says this, it's not that he's saying he's not good either. It's saying that, hey, remember, nobody is good enough. So right then, he hits it right out of the park and says, wait, wait, wait. First of all, let me say some groundwork. If you want to inherit eternal life, you're not going to be good enough. And then Jesus follows that and says, which commandments have you obeyed? You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony or lie, do not defraud, and honor your father and mother. He says the the six that deal with each other, with mankind. And notice he hasn't asked him about the ones that deal with God. Keep the Sabbath holy. I am the one true God. Keep me as your only God. Do not worship idols. So he says, let's address this first. And he asks him, have you obeyed those? And he goes, yeah, since my youth. Now, Jesus could have taken the opportunity to call him out right then. You've kept all six of those commandments since your youth. Well, right now you just lied because there's no way you've kept all the commandments and honored your father and mother through your youth because he just preached about that in the Sermon on the Mount. But then he says, He addresses the spiritual aspect with them. He says, if you want to be perfect, there's one thing you lack. If you've done all the mankind-related Ten Commandments, then you need to address the ones that deal with God. You need to make him first. You need to go sell everything you've got, and you need to worship God, and you need to give all your money to the poor. Make God your, your most important aspect. But this is really hard for the rich young ruler to understand, as Jesus says, because people who are wealthy tend to respect their wealth and trust in their wealth more than they trust in God. So here's something to learn. Traditionally, Jewish people believed that prosperity was related to piety. Okay, prosperity was related to piety, meaning If you were rich, it's because God blessed you and God loved you because you did something right. In God's eyes, he was rewarding you with wealth. In the New Testament, Jesus addresses this and says, wait, wait, wait. Your wealth has nothing to do with your spiritual connection with God, so stop worrying about all your wealth. So Christians in the New Testament kind of took that and swung the pendulum the other way and began taking vows of poverty and saying, well, if wealth is all bad, all wealth is evil. Money is the root of all evil, right? That's what they teach in the New Testament churches, but that's not true. Neither one is true. Money is not evil or good. Money is neutral. It just accelerates the characters that you already have. It amplifies the character that you have. So, So the rich young ruler can't handle it, though. He says, 
I, I've built my kingdom, if you will. I've put myself on my throne. I'm comfortable with that. I don't want to take any of that away. I just want to add to with what you've got for me, God. And I think that we all need to evaluate that a little bit because all of us get comfortable. All of us have built our lives around us. We've built our house. We've got our career. We've got our savings. We've got our family. We've got our relationships. The ones that we cherish, we build those relationships. The ones we don't cherish, we don't build those and we let those go away. And so we're comfortable with what we've got. And God's here to challenge that and go, I got something better for you. I've got pearls of great price. And we don't want to step outside of our comfort zone. Now, I'm talking, this story is about big issues. But if we want to get really, really practical, we can talk about small issues too. Opportunities that we have in life, not just to serve God, not just to follow his kingdom and be a follower of God, but also just to serve him and do amazing things for him here while we're here on earth. And so that's what I want to talk about today, kind of the smaller issues that we've got and how not to miss the mark, not to miss the opportunities we have, because we all want to, we all want to sit still in our comfort zone and not step outside. But whenever you do step outside, that's when God has an opportunity to move. Because we step and then he moves that step into abundance. And you will see miracles happen. So from time to time, we will all be presented with opportunities. Moments that could make a difference and a lasting effect. And many of those opportunities we are given will result in monumental changes in your life and the lives of others. And that's where we get our title from, Moments into Monuments. But none of the opportunities we're given will amount to anything unless we have the courage to accept them and to move. And that brings us to our big idea for today. Building moments into monuments requires you to move. It doesn't happen on its own. Can y'all say that with me? Building monuments, uh, build, excuse me, let me not mess that up when I'm having you. One more time. Building moments into monuments requires you to move. It requires you to move. You cannot be taken into something amazing without taking the first step first. And to me, like as a father of teenagers, and as a person who teaches teenagers a lot, they have a lot of opportunities in front of them, don't they? As they're growing, as they're going through school, as they're receiving offers for school or even just offers to participate in something like summer camp. I, it, never astonished, it never fails to astonish me, the kids who say, no, I'd rather play video games for that one week than go to summer camp, than to go to church camp and have an amazing experience that I'll never forget for the rest of my life. Why? Why do they think that way? Because they're just focused on the temporary and, and the here and now and their comfort level. I don't want to get on a van for eight hours and go talk to a bunch of people I don't know. It's uncomfortable. I'd rather just you know, do what I do all summer long and, and, and have fun. Or if you have a job and I don't want to go because I can't take off of work. Well, you probably could. You probably could. 
and it would be worth it, but you don't think about those things. And it's like that, way, that, like, like that with children and adults. So uh, there's another uh, example from Luke chapter 14 where Jesus addresses the actual specific concept of how we make excuses for not participating in what could be amazing things. I'll just read it here. Luke chapter 14, 16 through 24, Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and he invited many guests. Okay, there's something amazing about to happen and he invites everybody. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come in, everything is ready. We're ready for you. It's going to be awesome. But they were all began to make excuses. The first said, oh man, I would love to go, but I just bought a field and I need to go see it. Uh, please excuse me. And then the next one, he said, I just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to go try them out. Please excuse me. Oh man, I just bought this new car. I got to go check it out. I got to do, do whatever I got to do, right? I'm, I'm ad-libbing um, in Texas language here to scripture, just to be clear. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Okay, maybe I give that one an excuse. <laughs> the servant came back and reported to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry, and he ordered his servant, go out then and find more people. Go to the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Sir, we've already done that. What you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in. Like, go further out. Tell them to come in my, so my house will be full. I have so much to offer, is what the master says. I'm ready. My house wants, I want my house to be full. And everybody's making excuses. It's going to be an amazing event, a banquet. And so they, they would not come. So he said, I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. They're going to miss out. They're going to miss out on something amazing. So here's what I don't want us to miss. Every person, excuse me, let me, uh, yeah, every single time, every single time you're given an opportunity to experience something amazing, two things are true. You will, will never know how amazing it will be from the beginning when you make the decision. The second thing that's true is there will always be an excuse not to move. You will always be able to come up with something to talk yourself out of taking that step to do something amazing. Whether it's volunteering, going on a trip, um, you know, taking a new job, uh, having an opportunity to go serve uh, orphans in a missionary trip, um, going to summer camp, doing volunteer work here at church, volunteering in the back with our kids. There will always be a reason for you not to take that step. And for me too, because I've turned down a lot of stuff I shouldn't have in my life. But there will always be that reason. And you won't know what you're turning down until you take that step. Now, don't miss this either. Every person, every one of us who was a believer was created for a purpose designed by God. Every one of us. God said, I'm creating Eric, and I want him to do this. If you're a believer, you have a purpose, and you have a reason for being here. 
And God wants you to fulfill that purpose, but he won't drag you into that purpose kicking and screaming, will he? You can always reject the purpose that he designed you for, and you can reject God. But you'll never be as happy. You'll never experience the opportunity. You'll never experience the amazing event that God had planned for you unless you take that step of faith in that direction. And the steps don't have to be big, and they don't have to be immediate. They can be things that you think about for a while and that you pray about. Just realize there will always be an excuse you can come up with if you don't want to do it, but you're going to miss it. You're going to miss out big time if it's something that God has for you. I love this Andy Stanley quote. It's from his book called Visioneering, God's Blueprint for Developing and Maintaining Personal Vision. He says, if you decide that God is asking, uh, that what God is asking you to do with your life is just too much on you and just a little too inconvenient, then you'll never see the miracles that he has for you. You will never see the miracles that he has for you. There's a couple of examples from Scripture. Paul reminds the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 16, be very careful then how you live, not as wise, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Make the most of every opportunity to do good. Therefore, don't be foolish and understand what the Lord's will is. Seek the Lord's will in every decision that you make. And in Galatians chapter 10, uh, chapter 6, verse 10, let, uh, 9 and 10 actually, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. So, guys, we need to all ask ourselves. When we're evaluating decisions, when you have something in front of you and you're deciding or the Lord's laying on your heart to compel you to do something, we've got to think, what is the potential for God to use this? And we got to think long term. Don't think about this week or next week. Think years from now. What is God going to do? What is the potential for God to do with this action, with me participating in this event or this action or volunteering for this or going with another group of people whom I've been invited to, like the banquet Jesus talked about. And the second thing is what is the potential to impact other people? God can use you to do amazing things just by you stepping out of your comfort zone and stepping into a role that he's already prepared for you. What is the impact on others if I do this? Is it for the positive? And what would be the negative if I don't? If I don't step out and participate. So there's a couple of examples from Scripture. You guys know the story of Daniel. Daniel and the lion's den. Uh, you, you've heard that since you were, you were young. But it, it really began when the Babylonian kingdom overtook Judea and was taking a bunch of young men, young Hebrew men, to serve in the Babylonian kingdom in various ways. And so they took Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You guys probably remember that story. And Daniel obeyed God throughout the entire process. 
And it all began with one decision. It began in one pivotal moment when he was offered the food that the Babylonians were eating that he knew violated his Jewish customs and his Jewish laws. So he, from the very beginning, said, I'm not going to participate in this culture. Okay? I'm going to honor my God with what I put in my mouth. And everything that came from that, God moved. God made Daniel and his three friends incredibly strong, big, and handsome. They were, through their training, they became 10 times better than the Babylonian men who, and the other men who were eating the Babylonian food. All right, pretty incredible. And then they become leaders in the Babylonian empire. And so it's a pretty remarkable thing that God has an opportunity to do. It says Daniel resolved. He resolved. He made the decision not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief priest for permission not to defile himself in the way. And in the end, skipping down, this is in uh, Daniel chapter 1, verse 19. The king talked with him, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and so they entered the king's service. And every matter of wisdom and understanding about the king questioned them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel was established as third in charge of the entire kingdom three different times. Three different times. All because he honored God beginning with this one decision. What a tremendous potential for God to use him and to impact others. Those two things, for God to work and for other people to be impacted. Now, here's the most important thing that we evaluate when we ask ourselves about these decisions. Not just how is God going to use it, how are we going to impact others, but how will I look back on this in the future? And to me, for young people, this is the hardest to understand because they have trouble seeing past this weekend, right? If we're honest, not a year from now and two years from now. And every human, whether young or old, thinks that it's always going to be the way it is right now, especially when you're young. But for all of us, we always think the market's going to be what it is right now. We always think we're going to be the same as we are right now, that our scenario at work is going to be the same as it is right now. And those are called feelings, and we know the truth about feelings, right? If you're having a feeling, just be aware it's going to change. All feelings change. So how will I look at this decision years from now? And so that's like, are you going to remember working this week and working on the projects you've got going on? Or are you going to remember this amazing trip you had or this opportunity to serve somebody outside of our normal service area or, or an opportunity for God to use you and to use your hands and feet to do something amazing in your community or in the world? Or are you just going to remember what you did this week? Because I don't remember what I did two weeks ago. But I remember camp three weeks ago where we had some amazing experiences and kids were kneeling at the altar and calling out to God and just 
broken down before God, realizing who they are in front of a holy God, something they will remember for the rest of their life. But if I didn't go, I wouldn't have remembered that week at all. I wouldn't have registered on my memory, right? So that's how we, I love three easy steps. That's what we want, right? Three steps. If you follow these steps, you can make every good decision. All right, the potential for God to use it, the impact for others, and then how will I look at this in the future? I'm just kidding. Those three, three easy steps will not solve every decision you make, but they might help get some biblical perspective. The other example I wanted to share with you was Joseph. You guys know Joseph. He uh, had 10 brothers. He was, um, the, he was his father's favorite. He made him a coat of many colors. His brothers were jealous. They conspired to kill him. They sent him down a hole in a well. Then they decided to sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt as the interpreter of dreams. Miraculously, finds his way into a very high position in Potiphar's house who bought him out of slavery. And Potiphar's wife wants to be with Joseph. And comes on to him many, many times. The Bible says every day she came on to him. And what do you think Joseph was thinking at the time? You think he was tempted? Well, Joseph was probably very handsome. And Potiphar's wife, if she's Potiphar's wife, was probably very beautiful. And so he had a decision to make. And he probably could have justified in his own mind to indulge himself He probably could have. And the Bible's full of people that do, including King David, right? But he didn't. He didn't. Because hopefully he was thinking to himself, what's my story going to be? Am I going to look back on this and go, yeah, I indulged myself and that was it, and then I got killed for doing so? Or is it going to be, God gave me an opportunity, Potiphar trusted me, I was proved trustworthy because I refused his wife's advances. So the story he tells now includes him being faithful. And what is the result of Joseph being faithful and putting God first in his relationships with other people? He didn't indulge himself. And think of what happens after that. He becomes a position of authority in Egypt in charge because he interpreted the Pharaoh's dream, he now becomes in charge of getting the country through the uh, famine that's coming. And the Israelites uh, move eventually that, you remember, they come, his family comes and meets him. They come to buy grain and then they, he sends for Benjamin, comes back. So in the end result, that's how all the Israelites get brought to Egypt, later become enslaved, and then you have Moses and Joshua and the ten plagues leading the Israelites through the Red Sea into the Promised Land. Like the whole rest of the Old Testament hinges on this one decision. I don't know if you ever thought about it that way, but if if he indulged himself and was killed the Israelites would have never been brought to Egypt because he wouldn't have brought his family. They would have never been enslaved and they never would have been brought through the Red Sea 
into the promised land, which has been symbolized, which symbolizes what Jesus did. Like literally the rest of the Bible is based on this foreshadowing symbolism of what Joseph caused. And if you boil it all down, it would have all gone away if he indulged himself. It's pretty incredible. Look at what God can impact, what God can do with one good decision, with one faithful decision, because he chose to obey God. So, there's a lot of pressure to make the right decision because of what God can do, but I want us to relax a little bit, relax a little bit because God is God, amen, and he can do amazing things. I read when I was preparing this about an analogy, a fruit tree analogy. There, if picture a, an orchard, a uh, peach orchard, in fact, maybe something like this. And the harvesters have a particular time they harvest. It is when the peaches are ripe, right? Or just almost ripe, so they have time to ship them. Or uh, in today's day, they, they pick them when they're green, put them on a truck, and let them ripen on the truck on the way to the grocery store, right? But uh, picture an analogy. You have an opportunity to go pick fruit from a tree. What if you go too early? If the fruit ripens, or if the fruit is not ripe yet, and it falls from the tree, or you go too early, you have to deal with the unripened fruit, or if it falls the bugs are going to get it, and it's going to rot. And then if you wait too long, the fruit will ripen on the tree and either rot there or fall and rot the way it's supposed to. And then that's how the seeds get spread. But we take the opportunity right when it is ripe, and we go harvest it, we meaning the farmers and the humans, right? And they get bushels full of harvested fruit, beautifully, perfectly ripe, harvested fruit. Now, what happens to all the rest of it? What happens to the ones that fell and rotted because they fell too early? What happens to the one that fell too late? Those get raked up and put in a compost pile. And the compost creates nutrients for the next year's harvest. So you can think about your opportunities that way and some that you may have missed because... You jump too early when God was preparing you to move, or you move too late when God was telling you to move. God can still use that. For one thing, it prepares us to, make, to take the opportunity next time. So I, th I think all the time about whenever my wife and I moved back to the southwest side of Houston, and we found a church. Somebody told us about River Point Church. You know, it's a huge mega church down in Sugarland, And we started going there, and it was cool. I mean, they got music, like talented singers, talented preachers. It's a show, and it's awesome. But you don't really get to talk to the preacher ever. How many of y'all are proud that Pastor Randy knows your name? Like, you're, you got his phone number? I think that's awesome, right? And so whenever you go to a mega church, you're an ant, you're one in a million people, and we felt that. Now, we were part of a home team, which is how they counter, you know, at megachurches, you have small groups that get together, and, and our home team was good, um, 
but we still felt really, really, uh, there's a word for it, and I, I've been trying to think of it, and I can't think of it, but when God is pulling you out of a church, like he pulls you to church, but then he can also pull you out of a church, and it's counterintuitive because it's like, God, why would you want me to leave church? But we felt it for months and months, and we were afraid to leave because we were comfortable with our friends, and we couldn't bear to tell them, these people we've been meeting with every week for years, we're leaving this church. And I know it's an issue pastors deal with a lot when people come to them and say, hey, I'm just not too comfortable here. I would rather go to a different congregation, be part of a different church family. And that's, that happens. And the reason is because God is doing something in their heart. He's drawing them away. We didn't know until later, after we finally left, and we were looking for a new church, and we saw a sign that said Eagle Heights Church. And we were like, oh my gosh, Eagle Heights Church is where we got married 20 years. Well, now it's been 20 years. At then it was 10 years before. I wonder if Pastor Randy's still there. So we looked him up, and he was there. And so we came, and after that, we were like, this is exactly what we've been aching for this small church family. Uh, where we can dive in, we can help, we can make an impact. We're not an ant in a, in a huge colony. Like, we can be a part of this, and it's fulfilling. And what I found out right after that was we just built this building a month before we saw the sign. We missed a big opportunity to be a part of putting these walls up of putting these lights up, of laying this carpet, laying this flooring, and we could have helped, and it would have been a privilege to do so. But we waited when God was calling us, so we missed a big opportunity. Now, did God still use us? Uh, hopefully, he's still using us, right? He's using us in this congregation, so it's not all is lost. So I, I don't regret it completely, but I, we did miss an opportunity to be a part of putting these walls up, and that would have been such a privilege to be a part of that to be a part of building God's church. So all that to say, God can still use you if you've missed the opportunity, if you'll let him, if you'll still move later. So how do I apply this message? I apply this message by a couple of things. We need to think about and identify what is the self-talk that happened when I missed the opportunity in the past. If I had opportunities that I shunned or stayed away from, what was my thought process in the past? Did I make excuses? Did I think I would do it later? What was I feeling at the time? Was I considering opportunity costs? Like what if, like the teenagers, if I go to camp, I won't be able to play video games, right? So what was my thought process in the past? And number two is to overcome. You very often will not be able to make these decisions on your own. You need someone to walk you through it with you. Who will I use as an accountability partner to help me overcome my inner whiner? My inner whiner. So I need to talk through these opportunities with somebody because there's wisdom in numbers, preferably a believer that can help me make sure that I'm making the right decision and taking advantage of what God may have for me because he's got amazing things for you. You were created for a purpose. If you're a believer, 
and you've got breath in your lungs, God wants to use you. Until you stop breathing, you are a servant of God, and he's going to use you for amazing things. All right, I'm going to close with this. Thinking about some of the biggest monumental achievements people have. People have had them in the world, some famous ones. I, I did some digging, and I couldn't find anything bigger, more monumental than the decision that Rosa Parks made. You guys know the story. Rosa Parks wouldn't give up her seat on a bus to a white man. There at the time, under segregation law, the front of the bus is reserved for white people, and the back of the bus is reserved for black people. Now, the line between them would move, and I just learned this, but the line would move based on how many white people got on the bus. Black people could sit anywhere they wanted in their section, but if a white person came on and there were no more seats for the whites, then the line moved back, and the black people had to stand up and move to the back or just stand to give a seat to a white person. Totally evil, not appropriate, not godly, not what, the, what God is about. But it's the way humans were because humans have evil in their heart. Now, Rosa Parks, that wasn't her first interaction on a bus. She rode a bus for years. She worked at a department store. In fact, going all the way back, she got married at 19 to Raymond Parks, who was 10 years her senior. Now, Raymond was already a member of the NAACP fighting for equal rights. And in 1943, she also joined the Montgomery chapter of the NAACP and became the chapter secretary. So she, was, she knew the background on the civil rights movement. And then on Thursday, she, be, she was commuting, uh, Thursday, December 1st, 1955, she was 42. She was commuting home from a long day of work at the Montgomery Fair department store on a bus. And she was in the black people section and too many white people got on board and they asked the next row of four black people to move back. And three of them did. Three of them did. She's the only one that didn't. And why not? It's because she was fed up. She knew what would happen. She knew she would get arrested. She could have just stood up and moved to the back and not have to go through all of that. She could have just said, you know what, I'm tired. I've been working all day. I want to go home to my family, to my husband, to my kids. She could have just moved and been angry, but she didn't. She stood on principle. She didn't think about what this is going to mean later on down the road. She made that decision that day. Now, what's interesting, though, is it's not the first time she made that decision. She made that decision before, 12 years earlier, with the same bus driver. At that time, black people had to get on the bus at the front, pay their fare, get off, walk around to the back of the bus, and get on in the back. The whole back section was for black people. So she got on and sat down in the front where she paid her fare. And the bus driver said, you need to move to the back. And she said, I'm not moving. And so he pulled at her coat and drug her off the bus 
She didn't get on the back. She went home a different way. What happened from that? Nothing. She was angry. The bus driver was angry. That's it. That was the first opportunity that she took, and it didn't work. Didn't make any impact. But it did make an impact on her, like in her heart, right? It prepared her for the next opportunity, for the next time. So God still used it. He still prepared her to say, I'm going to do this one day. I'm going to stand on principle one day. And then in 1955, she does. Now, here's something else that's incredible. When she made that decision on principle, she didn't know what was working in the background. She worked at the NAACP. She did work with E.D. Nixon, president of the NAACP. But she didn't know that he has been searching for years to find a person of noble, upstanding character that would not be assassinated in the media. A person of noble character that they could make a case out of and take it all the way to the Supreme Court. She didn't know he was looking for her, for a person just like her to make a global impact out of. So after it happened, after she got arrested, was posted bail, fined $10, and went home, then everything began to fall into motion. What God had been doing in the background, she didn't know about until she stepped out on principle, got arrested, went through that event, was publicly ashamed for not following the laws on the books at the time. Then God was orchestrating things behind the scenes where that trigger made everything else fall into place. Now, it wasn't easy but it did begin a huge global movement, the civil rights movement. In fact, black participation in the boycott that was started as the day after she was released was far larger than anyone had, had anticipated. It lasted over a year. Even the, even the best optimist in the black community didn't think that it would be so successful. Nixon and some ministers decided to take advantage of the momentum forming the Montgomery Improvement Association to manage the boycott. And they elected Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as the new Montgomery, who was new to Montgomery and just 26 years old as the association's president. So Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. comes on the scene in the civil rights movement because of Rosa Parks' decision pretty impactful. And you guys know the rest is history, and there they are together. So very remarkable what can come out of one decision. On November 13, 1956, the Supreme Court ruled that bus segregation was unconstitutional, and the boycott ended on December 20th, the day after the court's written order arrived in Montgomery. Parks, who had lost her job and experienced harassment all year became known as the mother of the civil rights movement because of her decision. Now, seemingly it's just one decision made on principle, but really she didn't know the conditions that were aligning for her to make that decision, that were aligning for her to make a global impact out of that decision. Four black riders were asked to move. She could have easily stood as well. She could have taken the easy road 
and she didn't. She stepped out of her comfort zone, stood on principle, was arrested and stuck it through. She turned a moment into a monumental moment, a monumental movement based on one hard decision. So guys, whenever we have decisions to make, to stand on principle, to move in the direction of something the Spirit is leading us to do, no matter how big or small, if it's something to volunteer, to give your time, you never know what God will do. You never know how amazing it will be, and you will always have an excuse not to move. But keep in mind, if we are breathing and we're a believer, we are to serve God and to move when he asks us to move. Heavenly Father, this is a tough message to hear, but we're thankful that it's in your word. There's so much information in there in just a few words, just a small conversation between the rich young ruler and Jesus where you address so much that's in our hearts, even today. It's the same situation. We deal with distractions and leaving our comfort zone the same as anybody else has in history because you created us all the same. But God, it's you who we rely on to to give us the courage to step out of our comfort zone and most of all, to trust you, to be willing to give it all up, to give everything we've built, all of our the comfort zone that we've built, the comfort level we are to come down off of our throne and to to declare that you belong on the throne of our lives. And we are here by your will. And you created us with a purpose to serve you and to serve your kingdom. And you promised to take care of us and to walk us through it all the way. And what's coolest about that, God, is that it's more amazing what you have to offer this pearl of great price this banquet you have is far better than anything we could have imagined but we're blinded by the condition we're in so God we ask you to take these blinders off show us your kingdom and remind us of how amazing serving you can be and stepping out of our comfort zone into something that could be and has the potential to be amazing not just for you, not just for others, but for ourselves as well and what we can get out of it. God, take care of us this week. Keep us reminded about this scripture in Matthew and the rich young ruler. And bless these people as they go back to home today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, thank you, church, very much. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your time and your attention. All right, Um, we've just heard God's word. Will you say it with me? Now let's go live it. All right, God bless you guys. You're dismissed.